Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Amanda, Kentucky is a big beef cattle state. We're eighth in the nation in uh, beef cattle production, uh, largest beef producing state east of the Mississippi River. We have over 40,000 beef cattle farms, and we have some of the largest and most dense stream network in the country. Knowing all this, how do we protect our water quality, but at the same time, help our beef producers uh, increase their production? It certainly is a challenge, and this is something that I work on almost on a daily basis, working a lot um, on things like the Kentucky Ag Water Quality Act. We can talk a little bit more about that um, as well, but um, I was able to meet with Steve Higgins um, from here at UK, and we met at the Eden Shale Farm, which is um, kind of a joint venture between the University of Kentucky College of Agriculture, Food and Environment, and the Kentucky Cattlemen's Association and the Kentucky Beef Network. And so let's um, let's hear what Steve has to say. He's got always got a lot to say, but he certainly today on this interview has a lot to say about beef and water quality. My name is Steve Higgins. I'm the Director of Animal and Environmental Compliance for the University of Kentucky College of Agriculture. Uh, part of my job is to do environmental talks for beef cattle producers. They want to see a, a return on some sort of investment within three to five years. As a beef cattle producer, I ask them, I'm, I'm like, what is, your, uh, what is your output? What is it that you produce? Normally they say uh, calves, carcasses, pounds, weight, that kind of thing. And I go, okay, that's good. And I'm like, can you, can you see where I would say it's forages? That basically the quantity and quality of the grasses that you have on your farm affects how many critters you can have before you have to move them. And if that is the case, that your output is actually grass, then that should be an epiphany that changes everything for you. So what is it you need to produce grass? You need sunlight, you need water, and you need a soil matrix. So, uh, and then we just basically start from there. So you don't want to lose your soil, you don't want to erode it, you want to have a deep soil matrix, you want to promote grass, and if you want to promote grass, then why do you have heavy animals out there walking on it? Why are you using a tractor to drive out there in the wintertime to to, uh, to rut up your soils and to compact them and compress them. And then if you're not doing rotational grazing, they're out there continuously, and it, in Kentucky it rains about every three days, so basically those soils get wet, and they're gonna compact them, and they're gonna compress them. So the thing is, is to get them thinking about how to actually have forage production. And then uh, many of the beef cattle producers that I deal with just don't have any infrastructure on their farm. What they have is, is a tractor, and they're using their tractor to basically replace having structures uh, for you know, basically places to feed. And, um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that they're missing out on too because basically what this is, is uh, it's material handling. You're moving products from one end of a factory floor to another. And if they looked at it that way, then basically what they would do is, is probably come up with some labor-saving devices on their farm that would simplify their work. And if they understood that the environment is not just the ecological environment that we think of, it is, um, it's the environment that the cows are in 24 hours a day. So you're trying to make a better environment for the cattle so they're not uh, slugging around in, uh, in mud and uh, in their own manure and stuff. And so that's another thing that you need to do material handling on and they need to eat a whole lot of forages and they need to drink a whole lot of water. So how are you going to provide 
this water and this food for them in an efficient way for you and for them. And so that's kind of, I just give them a whole list of, of practices or tools that they can put in their toolbox for, that they can use to select to basically increase their herd production. So Steve talks a little bit, um, actually a lot. Steve does talk a lot, if you know Steve. If anybody, he's a fast talker he's with a, a lot of information. Yes, he is. And so some of our listeners maybe have interacted with him, and, and we, we kid with him a lot, so hopefully he has will be a good sport about <laughs> things that we say. But um, he has a lot to say about the environment as a whole. But since we really focus on water on this podcast, um, I tried to get Steve to kind of drill it down and be a little more specific and focused on water. Um, so he does that here, and he talks a little bit more specifically about water and cattle production. Water's part of the environment, okay? And so what, what you have to convince a producer, and most producers aren't interested in protecting water quality for the sake of protecting water quality. But if you convince them that basically water quality affects their herd production, then you've got something. There's several different environments. There's the physical environment that the cows are standing in. Are they standing in scorching sun? Are they in belly deep mud? Are they are they standing in freezing rain? That is the physical environment for a cow. Then there's the the, the outside environment is what I just described. But let's say you bring that animal into a barn. Well, then you, you're worried about the air quality environment for that cow. And let's say that you, uh, what about the cows themselves? Cows within a herd have uh, dominant and submissive characteristics. And then basically you're looking at aggressive behavior between them because they're fighting over um, limited resources that you're not providing them. So that's another part of the environment which affects them. So the thing is, if you actually look at all of these definitions of the environment, the physical environment, the indoor environment, the social environment between cattle and the water quality environment are all connected. If you affect one, you influence the others. So one of the things we want to do is, is we want to eliminate mud. If you eliminate mud, then you eliminate erosion. And then if you get a producer to think about designated feeding areas and not driving his tractor through the field and compacting the soils, we have more infiltration. Infiltration grows grass. Amanda, I've looked at a lot of pictures from the Eden Shell Farm. It looks like they're doing some really neat, innovative, uh, best management practices on the farm. What are some of the things they're doing? They have, and, and Steve's done a ton of work up there. Um, you know, one of the things that um, there was a... Um, they've had some issues with um, with their grazing system in terms of losing some cat some calves, um, which is um, the worst thing that can happen in a cattle production. You certainly don't want to lose your next crop. Um, and so what they did is they started to look at what their facilities were. And you know the Eden Shell Farm is is somewhat um, typical of uh, what Steve likes to call a hill farm or anything really in the outer bluegrass and the knobs, and folks who are farming those areas understand that. Um, steep slopes, um, but they're good for grazing, but um, you know sometimes it provides, there's other challenges too. And the other thing is they had some infrastructure there, um, but maybe they weren't utilizing it or it wasn't being used well. And so Steve has been able to, to go there and look at what they had and um, you know use what resources he had there kind of think of it in terms of what any farmer would do. They're going to use their resources. And so he just tried to look at them in a different way and repurpose. So let's listen to um, Steve talk about all the things that they've done there. The soils here have what we call a restricted root layer, um, which is basically a clay pan at some depth, basically prevents the water from trickling down. 
The soils are lower in organic matter. The slopes are steep, which is great for cattle grazing. But the point is, is you have rapid runoff, no infiltration, no permeability. So what you want to do is, or what we've done is, is we've basically ripped the soils with the contour to basically create a terrace so that now we're slowing down the water, we're spreading it out with a berm, essentially, to retain as much of that water as possible. And we did the ripping, essentially, on five-foot increments going down this hill with the contour, so basically we've got numerous rip marks, I'd say two dozen in this case. And so we're slowing the water down, but also doing that toolbar um, removed or helped remediate that, that clay pan that's down there that was the restricted root layer. So now we can get deeper root growth, which means we can have taller vegetative growth, which now we have more filtration of the runoff coming off that concrete pad. So one practice Steve is talking about is um, ripping the soil, which was um, not something that I was real familiar with. Um, we didn't do that on our farm where I grew up. Maybe we needed to, but we didn't. Um, and so, but what he did, it kind of makes sense to, to rip the soil such that you got more infiltration. So Carmen, do you know of other applications or have you used that before in some of your work? I have. Uh, we actually use it in mindland reclamation. So in a similar aspect, you have land that gets uh, fairly compacted over time and it has grass grow onto it much like you would see probably at the farm where you have cows running around, equipment and so forth, the soil will start to get compacted. Well, when those uh, soil particles start to get closer and closer together, that compaction, there's not a lot of room for water to move through them. When you rip the soil, and anybody who's plowed land will, will recognize some of this, or when you till your garden, you loosen up all that soil. And so if you loosen it up, you kind of open up these spaces in between the soil particles for the water to go. And the mining, we do something very similar, but with a really big shank or kind of plow that may be several feet uh, deep that goes into the soil. And really when you do that, you create these open spaces for water to soak in. And at the same time, because it's really what we would consider to be hummocky or maybe a little bumpy, you don't have the same erosion kind of issue because you're not generating that level of runoff. You're not having much because most of it now really soaks into the ground. So in, at Eden Shale, they're using that area where they did the soil ripping as an infiltration area, and essentially it's a filter strip. Um, the the um, uphill section or the, the production area that's uphill of that um, is a place where they may concentrate animals for a while, so there may be the possibility of having manure stockpiled, and they use that, that as a filter strip so that if there's any surface runoff, it would infiltrate in that area instead of just running off, you know, down into into the stream. Um, and we were talking about some of the other practices that they've installed at the Eden Shell Farm, and all of these practices can be incorporated into the Kentucky Agriculture Water Quality Plan for the Eden Shell Farm. And that's a lot of what I work on is the Ag Water Quality Act. And it says that if you have 10 acres or more involved in agriculture, then you need a water quality plan. So all the practices that Steve's been talking about, whether that be like the filter strip um, or um, using alternative water sources. Um, actually, I think he's going to talk about waterers here in just a second. So um, we won't give that away. But all of the practices that he's talking about um, can be incorporated into that water quality plan, um, but what we hope is that farmers will see that these are practices, like we said, that make good sense for their operation. Um, so let's listen to Steve talk about um, some different waterers that maybe you don't see every day on, on your average farm. So 
the water that we actually harvest off the roofs, we detain it in uh, storage structures, tanks essentially, cisterns or above ground tanks, and then we use we use gravity or essentially free labor or free work is what we would call it to take that water and use it to fill up a water. On our case, we're actually using tires, construction tires, mining tires, and uh, so, so are these used tires. They're used tires. They hold about 800 gallons worth of water. We cut the sidewall out. We run the plumbing and the drain line up through the bottom, and then basically we pour the bottom in concrete to seal it. And so what we get with that is, is we get maximum surface area uh, on a round uh, device to basically, which is even better than square, because we can get numerous cattle around these devices to water them. Again, most producers don't realize that water is directly related to their production. So we're providing clean water abundantly for these animals to drink. There's no aggression to fight over it because they have plenty of space at these tires. And then the more they drink, then the more they eat, which is putting on pounds on these critters. And so, and then any kind of overflows that we have off that, we've got that controlled so we don't have any erosion. Around the waters, we put in heavy traffic pads. So the siding of these waters is crucial, not only from the standpoint of reducing erosion and mud and aggression, but also to utilize these waters for multiple groups of animals. So... Uh, we've got one water that we call the four-way because it, that one water serves four different pastures. We've got other ones that you can have two different groups of animals on each side of the water because we have a separation fence between them. So again, you're utilizing this which facilitates rotational grazing, which is your limiting factor for, for most operations is, the, is providing that water for rotational grazing. And um, so it, it's worked out really, really well. One of the unique systems that Steve talked about was a tire waterer, actually made out of a tire, like a mine tire, that they're using to water cattle. We uh, at the University of Kentucky, we actually have an extension publication through the College of Agriculture, Food, and Environment that can help a producer learn how to do that. And we also have a video that shows you step-by-step -step what you need to do to build your own tire waterer. So you're getting all kinds of environmental benefits here. So you're eliminating a potential source of waste in, in an, a used tire that's no longer um, needed for that original use, but you're repurposing it. So that kind of falls in the, you know, our, our three R's of, of waste reduction is reduce, reuse, and recycle. So we're doing that with the tire water, but then also having um, an alternative water, which is another Kentucky Ag Water Quality Act um, best management practice. So, Amanda, Steve talks about cost share as being one of the means that can help put in some of these best management practices. What exactly is cost share? And if I'm a farmer and want to get involved, how do I do that? Well, the first thing that you'll want to do as a farmer is make sure you have a Kentucky Ag Water Quality Plan. Uh, working through the process of developing that plan will help you identify what practices you might need. And visiting your local conservation district office is the first place to go, or you can go um, online. We have some um, web resources on the University of Kentucky's website um, about Kentucky Ag Water Quality Act, and we'll link that also on our website um, for, for the podcast. Um, but developing your ag water quality plan kind of gives you that list of practices you might need. And then visiting your conservation district office, they can give you information about the different pools of cost share. So there are a variety of pools. Um, there's federal level, federal level cost share dollars that are run through the Natural Resources Conservation Service or the NRCS. Um, and their programs vary 
and they're subject to the farm bill. So those programs, um, usually they're on a, a, a one to two, maybe three year basis of, of what programs they're being promoted at the time. Um, so that's a federal level um, cost share program. The state has a cost share program um, that is run through the Kentucky Soil and Water um, Conservation Commission. And that is also, you can get information through the Conservation District offices. And then also we have um, state, other state level funds or county level funds actually um, through um, monies that it's a CAPE program, the Kentucky Agriculture Incentive Program County Agriculture Incentive Program. Let me start that over. CAPE is the County Agriculture Incentive Program, and it's commonly known as the tobacco buyout money. And that's um, money that is set aside on a county level basis. And there are some of the practices in there for agricultural um, diversification, but also there's conservation practices included in that program as well. And um, so cost share is just what it says. It doesn't mean it's free money that you're going to just go and ask for a check and get it with no contribution, but it's usually a 75-25 split or an 80-20 split where you're going to invest at least 20 to 25 percent of the total cost of the practice as a farmer, and then that program will supply the balance of that. So it's a, it's a great financial incentive for our farmers to do conservation. So Amanda, with the cost share, the way it sounds, there's a lot of incentive for farmers not only to uh, implement these best management practices that they may see at Eden Shell and even some that may not be quite there that can help them improve the economic benefit of their operation at the same time providing water quality benefits. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of KYH2O. Remember to check out our website. We've got some new and exciting materials there, especially after this particular episode, um, and hope that you will learn a little bit more about water in Kentucky and join us for our next episode. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.